This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcasts at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers. Yo. There's certain things that I can talk to you about that I can't really with my dad. I don't think we should talk about this. Hi there. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen. I'm Jen, and I'm here with your co-host, Lynn. And today we're going to talk about a very interesting topic that isn't talked about quite as often, and that's really the sexual abuse of boys and men. And I think it's such an important topic to talk about, one, especially in light of a lot of the abuse allegations that are coming out around the abuse going on in Britain and the soccer, or I guess they call it football there. Mm -hmm. And also just because there's so many myths in our culture about whether or not boys and men can be abused. And I think it's really important for us to talk about that aspect. So before we begin, I also want to address the fact that just because we're talking about the sexual abuse of boys and men doesn't mean that we're glossing over the abuse and violence that happens with women. I just think it's also really important that we address the fact that boys are also abused and it's not talked about as often. And as professionals, we have some background in this that I think we can give a lot of insight that maybe other people wouldn't have access to. So welcome, Lynn. Thank you, Jen, and I I think you've said some things that are very important. Um, This is a topic uh, in our work that's often forgotten. You know, we uh, work with other therapists who may never have seen boys who've been abused. Um, We work with the abusers themselves, who are are men and women, and we're going to talk about both male and female abusers. Right. Um, We think it's very important to work with the abused children and adults but also the abusers, because it's really a spectrum of behavior that uh, is targeted in our our culture. The other aspect, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to add, and often it's a cycle. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And people get caught in it. You know, I've worked with boys who've been abused by priests, and then they go on to be involved in abuse of their families and uh, their siblings and other uh, children. And parents are shocked by this. They don't realize that abuse really works this way and that it affects character and desire and development in so many ways. Um, The other area, you know, is the priest abuse. And I think that's something that's really a huge problem. I've done a lot of work in that area, and we'll talk about that later in the podcast. Yeah, well, I think this would be a good time to talk about it. I think before we start, I want to bring up, you know, that really addresses one of the big myths is I think for a long time people thought about abusers, particularly abusers of children, as these sort of random people that would target children. And the truth is, as sad as it is, a lot of the times the abusers are people that the children know in some capacity. And so I think what we're seeing a lot more, you know, there's the whole priest abuse, there's also the soccer coaches, Boy Scout leaders, and just 
people who in the community are very well liked. And so I think that creates a lot of issues as well in people coming out about their abuse. And when you're thinking about maybe a man or a woman who would uh, abuse children, um, one of the things that comes to mind, first, they're often charming, they're seductive, they have skills to groom or pull a child into an abuse cycle. Right. And they've developed them. They often have been abused themselves, so they're using the abuse in some way to reenact you know, what has happened to them. And it can be that they're sexually reenacting it for their own desire and pleasure, or they're reenacting it trying to get better and get rid of these desires that they really don't want. So there's all kinds of reasons for these type of reenactments. But uh, it really is true that with the abusers, um, uh, they're within the community, they're often embedded. Um, They can also be people like doctors who have access to children. And I think that's been an eye-opener for me as a doctor, that fellow doctors could abuse children, and they're alone with children. Children trust them. They have extensive relationships with children. They know how to develop skills. And um, so I'd say not for all parents who are listening to be totally alarmed, but to be aware of who might abuse your child and and who is out there in the population. I'd add to that teachers. I think that's another big key area. Right. So child care workers, teachers, TAs, all individuals. Babysitters are very, very common janitors in schools. Um, So people who have access to children and who children might trust. So I thought it would be good, as you were talking about, you have extensive knowledge of priest abuse. And I think that's something that a lot of people, for whatever reason, there still isn't that much literature really on it. Can you share some of what it is that you've discovered? Well, uh, to begin briefly, there's a a long history of boys and and some girls and women uh, being abused by priests. There are references to it in the Middle Ages. Um, you know, it was co- handled differently then. Uh, beginning, I think, in the 1950s, uh, brave individuals came forward uh, about abuse and uh, they reported it. Uh, in uh, French Canada, there's the kind of the famous series called The Boys of St. Vincent's, uh, where a school had uh, a number of abusers and a number of children who were abused. And that was of really great concern. But now, uh, first, it was thought that that was an only one. And now it's realized that that's replicated everywhere. In our own environment of Northern California, um, uh, I myself have evaluated probably more than 15 priests who've been directly involved in sexual abuse of boys and girls, mostly boys. Yeah. And um, I've written a number of papers on it, working on a book on it about priest abuse. And all of this is a concern. Um, the priests are embedded in the community. They're very well loved. Um, the church itself has denied that this occurred until recently and uh, moved priests from parish to parish with complaints. Uh, the children's protests were ignored. <laughs> The children really didn't want to talk about this, so they did, failed to disclose. They hid it because they realized, I think, that these priests were powerful individuals who would be believed. 
Uh, they were often threatened by the priests to uh, do not talk. Your parents won't believe you. You know, I will kill you or I will do something very harmful to you. Yeah, it's um, very terrifying. It's terrifying, really. And it has ruined thousands upon thousands of lives. Um, the parents of children who find this out feel betrayed by the priest who they might have been invited into their home. Right. Um, so there are many, many cases like this that are real tragedies. Now, with respect to boys, I think parents didn't believe uh, that a, one of their sons could be abused. They might be more protective of their daughters. So you have that aspect of it. As soon as parents find out about it, they're worried about their child being gay or homosexual. And the, the boys themselves have those fears because they were chosen by a priest. Right. Although it's, I think it's important to say most of the abusing priests are not gay. They are pedophiles who really are choosing an unhealthy sexual pattern separate, really, from the healthy gay route. So that's very important, I think, to really emphasize, because there's confusion about that, both with the boys and with the parents. Yeah, I mean, I think that's such an important point to highlight. And I think to build on that, something that is something you taught me was really that a lot of these priests actually don't see themselves as these older men having relationships with younger children, which can be kind of hard for somebody who isn't a pedophile to understand. But I think that's a big part of pedophilia in a way, is that they don't see themselves the way that the rest of society may see them. Can you I, explain that a bit more? I think it was, it, it shocked me. I realized this probably um, 10, 20 years ago, but working with abusing individuals, both men and women, but they actually often are locked into the idea that they are children. Um, on some level, at least in terms of their sexuality. And so they see themselves as, you know, involved with a, another child. And this is particularly true when the abusing individual is young. But even as they age, they hold on to the idea that they're childlike. I uh, recently saw a mother who was an abuser, um, and she was an abuser of teenage boys, and she felt like she had missed her high school years, so she was going to go back and find them. She looked young like her daughter, and she was really making every effort to characterize herself in that way. And she saw herself in that way. It's part of the process of treatment that they start to see they are adults. They have to care for these children, be responsible for them, and it's not a power-equal position. And I think that's so important to highlight because that's what I see in working with the people is they really don't see that they're kind of co-opting somebody into their own fantasy and that, you know, just because they see themselves a certain way doesn't mean that that is now a power equal relationship by any means. Right. And I think the world doesn't see that. Right. You know, we scapegoat abusers, too. Um, abusers deserve to be punished, and they are responsible for the abuse they engage in with children. That's oh, absolutely. Really, yeah. But they are scapegoated. Um, a fellow therapist refused to treat them. Um, it, no one wants to live next door to them. Right. Um, there's really not understanding of how this happens. And uh, uh, abusing individuals have parents, too, and uh, those parents are often struggling, really, with what to do with them. 
Well, I think it's a very hard thing because already you're talking about a topic that is very hard to talk about. And then to imagine that somebody you know, I think that's what's really hard for a lot of people is that it's not, you know, the random pedophile. It's, oh, maybe it's my teacher or a coach of, you know, a friend of mine. They're people in our community. And I think we have to figure out how do we have these conversations. And I think you can also help kids out by educating early, teaching them what is healthy relationships, what is healthy sexuality versus what's abusive. And I think when we don't have these conversations, I think that's a lot of what allows these different um, pedophiles to keep abusing for such a long period of time. That's something I've seen is that a lot of times as somebody comes out, you find it's actually far more extensive than just that one person bringing up. And, and you bring up such an important point that working with our children, we have to have conversations with them. It's not just say no and don't touch this part of your body, but it's really about somebody you know and trust will give you little gifts, they'll be nice to you, and they'll draw you into, as you put it so well, their own sexual fantasy with all of this. So to begin to talk about the grooming process in child-friendly words with children. And I think children. that's hard when you don't <laughs> yeah. understand as an adult yourself necessarily that grooming process. But I agree, figuring out, particularly as professionals, I think it's our job to figure out how do we communicate these ideas to our children? And not in an alarming, you know, be afraid of everybody way, but really that you do have to be on the lookout for this. Right. And uh, I think fellow teachers, you mentioned teachers, but yeah. fellow teachers have a very hard time believing that another teacher could be abusing. You know, it's the man yeah. or woman in the room next door and they don't believe it. But I think, again, high risk red flags are... There are teachers who are alone with children. They're teachers who are often, you know, the favorite teacher. They're the teachers that are taking children outside the school to different activities. Uh, they're teachers that are working after school for hours and hours alone with children. You know, and all of this raises concern. And one of the things that that brings up, too, I think, is because... We see sexual abuse as such a horrific thing, which it is. I think a lot of people are afraid to bring up accusations. So a lot of people maybe have a sense. They know something's off. You know, once it comes out, there are more people that come up and say, I had a feeling about this person or I had a sense or kids have a sense, but they don't know how to make sense of it because they don't have the language. And I think the really important thing is to pay attention to those feelings and that there are patterns and that if you are concerned, it's important to bring it up to other people and not to just keep that to yourself. I couldn't really agree more because you know from all the research you've done, Jenna, in this area that so few children come forward and disclose abuse. Right. And if a child comes forward and says something about a teacher, about an individual, the great likelihood is that, very great likelihood, I think it's only, you know, three in a hundred cases are false allegations, and a large, large number are true and reflect a much bigger problem. And I think to bring up one of the things about those false allegations is a lot of them come up in divorce custody cases. So there's that whole aspect, too. So outside of that, if a child is bringing these things up, a lot of times they're speaking the truth. 
And I've worked in so many what we call multiple child school cases where there might be, you know, you see one or two children come forward, but there's a kind of an underground of maybe 20 children or more who've been abused, very similar to the priest abuse cases. Well, I think there's a lot of pattern there in that once somebody comes out about their experience and other people hear about it, I think that they go, wow, I'm not the only one. Mm -hmm. And they also feel, well, this person had courage and that helps to give other people courage. Well, this person had courage and that made a difference to me. So maybe if I tell my story. And I think maybe this is a good point to talk about why is it that people don't speak up. Because I think there's an assumption that, well, if this happens to you, you should just say something. But it's really not that easy. Right. I think many, we've already mentioned, fear of reprisal. You know, that the priest or the teacher is threatening the child. Um, The thought that they will not be believed. You know, it's an adult versus them. With boys, I think, concerns about homosexuality and being gay. You know, the teacher chose me. I cannot tell you the number of boys I've had in therapy who have worked, you know, kind of solidly to say, why did they choose me? I'm sure they thought I was gay. I must be gay, even though I don't think I'm gay. And there's a whole kind of process there. Um, I think even disclosure causes loss of self-esteem because people don't immediately say, oh, you're right, embrace you, they question you, and there's what's called secondary abuse. Yeah. When you're really in the process of the investigation, you're really abused repeatedly again. So there's so many reasons of protecting parents. You know, uh, my parents yesterday saw a young woman, and uh, she was protecting her parents. She was abused at the age of 10 and thought her mom couldn't really handle anything more. So there's so many reasons, I think, that children do not disclose. Um, And we have to help our children to feel safer. We have to make them aware that we are capable of hearing these very terrible things. And we will do all that we can to really help them with it. And I think in order to do that, adults really need to educate themselves, too, because it's not an easy thing to address. And it's something that you have to realize, you know, if you take that child seriously and you show them, I'm taking you seriously on this, I think that goes so far in building a foundation from which that child or teen, because we're not just talking about children here, Mm -hmm. they then have, okay, somebody else believes in me, and I think that can help them build strength because it's not an easy battle. That's what they've shown in terms of disclosure, that moms can, uh, a careful mom who listens um, to her child Um, can bring out more of the story, can help the child to feel solid about it, um, can really help the child to feel confident and combat low self-esteem. So I think good parent listening around uh, these disclosures and outside relationships is important. And the truth is that the statistics are very high of women and men that are abused. And I think For people who haven't processed their own experience, sometimes if a child or a friend's child brings it up for you, if you haven't processed your own abuse, it's very hard to figure out how to help them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a big struggle too, because I think the statistics are, it's one out of every six American um, women is a victim of attempted 
or completed rape in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. And with men, it's about one in 33. But that's still huge. And so you think about a lot of people don't seek treatment because of shame, because they don't want to be re-victimized, because Mm -hmm. sometimes they don't want to see themselves as a victim. Right. Those are high statistics, but it's even higher in terms of sexual molestation or touching. Right. You know, attempted rape or rape is, is intercourse or attempted intercourse. And uh, that certainly happens. Uh, but more frequently, we now think that maybe a third of all girls are sexually molested or touched. Yeah. And maybe 20% of boys, so this brings us back to boys. Yeah. Um, I think boys really hide what happens to them. And you had asked me to talk about one of the cases and maybe to begin with a boy abused by a priest. You yeah. call him Garth because that's the name I've used for him. Uh, But he was abused at approximately 13 years of age, and uh, that's the age when most boys, uh, the highest percentage of boys face uh, abuse, and it's because they are developing sexually, they're a little bit more aware, and they're often pulled into sexually abusive relationships by men or women. And so this happened to Garth. Uh, He loved the priest who was roughly about 10 years older. And the priest, as mentioned earlier, identified himself as like Garth. You know, they were going to explore sex together. And uh, that, again, indicates some of the difficulties with the Catholic Church. They keep their priest, in many ways, not unknowledgeable about sexuality. And uh, then you have, uh, you know, a priest who feels like he's the same age as a child engaging in these activities. And then before you go on, I just want to pause because I think you brought up such an important point that a lot of people don't understand is that for the children, for the teens that are pulled into these fantasies, they really do feel like they're in love a lot of times. And it is a relationship that's built. And I think that's very hard to understand. And that's part of what makes it so hard to process because Mm -hmm. for them, it isn't just, oh, this horrible person and they're evil but it's really this complex, but I love them, but they did this terrible thing. And I know that that's terrible, but I also have these feelings. And I think I really just wanted to kind of expand on that a little bit because it's glossed over so often. Oh, Jen, you know, it's so important to talk about that because um, parents are horrified at when they hear it and adults, but the child is still often involved in the love relationship. Yeah. You know, particularly if it's been extensive abuse, they love that person. Um, It's their first love. Uh, It's really hard for the child to work that out. And uh, because that person is involved in their sexual fantasies, they pulled that person in too. So the child remembers the abusing priest or the abusing teacher much of their life. You know, it integrates into their core sexual fantasy. Well, it's at such a core age. Exactly. And so a lot of my work has really been to help men and women deal with what the impact of this on sexual fantasies. Many times individuals don't want to have sexual intercourse after they've been abused. And part of that is because their fantasies are co-opted with the abuse. And you've really got to help the young person and the adult transform really their sexual pattern. And uh, that's a big part of our work as therapists in this area. It is a big part of our work. And it's not easy because I think it's such a complex thing. And because it is so 
as we've talked about, sexuality is so integral to our lives. And so to have your sexuality essentially be powered over by somebody else at a time where you still, still don't fully understand your own sexuality, I think that can be very challenging. And it brings with it, there are a lot of negative effects that can happen with sexual abuse. Right. With boys and men, um, many boys and men that I've worked with, their fantasies and their behaviors change. So they'll either want to be submissive in a sexual relationship and reenact how they felt with the abusing adult. And that's problematic because a lot of partners don't want to engage in the submissive behavior, particularly if it's the entire sexual relationship. Right. Um, and I think that's, if you experience that with your partner, I think it's a flag that your partner may need abuse, may need therapy and may have been abused. Right. So I think it's good to be aware of that. Um, so that's one of the big things. The other thing that often happens, uh, you know, there, of course, there's celibacy and not wanting sexual activity. But the other is to really um, reenact it from the aggressive uh, stance where you identify with the aggressor and you become the aggressive person. And I think many individuals I've had in therapy have suspected that of their partner. Yeah. You know, where they've seen there's an aggressive pattern going on, their partner seems disconnected, they say they're unhappy with it as the person engaging in it, and their partner still can't change it. Yeah. So there's many it's unhealthy so yeah, sexual patterns that individuals are struggling with. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting in my work, too, is that while it does affect very much the sexual arena, obviously, it also affects the more relational intimacy kind of component of relationships, too. And, you know, because a lot of times the abuse happens by somebody who you've built trust with or they've built trust with you. And that makes it very hard, I think, to trust intimacy with another person. And that's a lot of the work that I do, I find, is, you know, yes, it is in the sexual realm as well, but it's kind of the intimacy part is very hard, too, because that has to do with just relationships with so many people. I mean, I think... Um, you've seen this too, but maybe, you know, if a boy is abused by a teacher, now they have a challenging relationship with their father, even though their father didn't abuse them, but the father is a trusted person, the teacher was a trusted person, and I think that can get very complicated. Well, recently, you know, in the last year or two, I've worked on this case of a young boy abused by a female teacher, which brings up, you know, an entirely different kind of situation. Right. But he had a lot of difficulty with his father in the way you describe. He became very angry that his father hadn't prevented it. Um, You know, it was kind of paradoxical that he would develop this intense anger with the father, but he did. Um, The female teacher, too, their whole range of different problems happened there, was exposed to the law. Um, She admitted her responsibility for it, which was at least good. But it left the boy, you know, having a lot of problems with intimacy. And then we as therapists become really their, their, uh, their person to begin to feel again yeah. Some of those feelings of closeness. And I think what you're describing, you know, I, I mentioned the mechanics of sex, but 
a big part of the work uh, is being a person that the individuals who've been abused, the boys and men can trust. And I've had people in therapy maybe 10, 15 years, and they, it's helping. You know, they trust more, but they still have doubts. They still reenact these sexual abusive relationships. There's still problems, you know, way down the road uh, with intimacy and sexual mechanics. And I think what you bring up there is one of the things that people who aren't familiar with this area don't recognize is how long some of these things can happen. You know, we've talked about, maybe we haven't listed it, but a lot of people have post-traumatic stress disorder. They have, you know, anxiety, depression, and those are things that can last a lifetime and different things can re-trigger. So a big one is that later on in life, Maybe you do end up in a relationship and you have kids. Well, when your kids get to an age around when you're abused, that brings up a lot of either will I abuse, even if you've never really wanted to abuse anybody. It can bring up will my child be abused? And I think people don't see that there's really this cyclical pattern that if it's not addressed, that creates kind of this legacy, that a negative legacy, but a legacy of abuse. You... Uh really the idea that uh, a boy uh, who's been abused would then abuse others is a, a fear I yeah. think, that all men and boys who've been abused have. And it comes up when men and boys have, when men have their own children. They're fearful, and they, that's a time they'll often come to therapy or they'll mention it to somebody else in a supportive way or attempting to get support. I think it's important to know from the research that most men who've been abused, the vast majority never, never abuse another person. Right. And, uh, you know, they are going to hold firm to that. Um, so I think that offers reassurance, I think, to men. And you choose the pathway of you're going to be a survivor and you're really not going to re-victimize other people. And that is such an important pathway to be on. But the fear that these men have that their boy would be abused by the Boy Scout Mm -hmm. coach or, or the teacher at school or some random stranger. They're fearful all the time. And they may be a different type of father because of, of what happened to them in a negative way. They're fearful. So I think you really have to work with that. The other thing is substance abuse. That's what I was going to yeah. bring up. Yeah. Because <laughs> my own studies of men, the biggest problem is really that they carry through out of the psychiatric and psychological world the substance abuse, alcohol, and other substances, I think, to forget really what has happened, to turn off the behavioral symptoms they may be experiencing, all of those things. Yeah, the best way I've heard it described by a client that I worked with was, you know, I don't like drinking, but... I do it because it silences my rage and it numbs my pain. And I just thought that was so powerful. Mm -hmm. I mean, it took a long time to even get there with the client and to have them open up. But I was like, wow, that is so powerful that they understand that it is a coping mechanism. And I think also because in our culture, we it doesn't really allow for men to experience anything other than anger. And they're not allowed to be victims because if you're a victim, you're not a man. And the, you know, quote unquote man. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just such a hard place for these people to be because they've already been victimized. But sure, I mean, maybe you don't have to take on the moniker of a victim, 
but horrible things have happened mm-hmm. to you and they affect you. And if you don't feel that you're even allowed to say that you were affected by these horrible things, then of course that creates so many issues. And of course you're going to turn to different things to help you get through them. And the man, your client, had such courage. Oh, absolutely. Really, to put it into words in that way. And I admire so much the men who come and stay in therapy around this issue because they are facing, you know, the potential stigma of weakness that men come forward in this way. But really, they are survivors and they are brave and courageous to face these feelings and to not act on them or push them down or drink them into the ground, that kind of thing. Um, It really is so important, I think, that we acknowledge in our culture that men, you know, do suffer abuse and they need to have treatment and support And that isn't not masculine. That's really being a strong man to come forward and do that. That it takes a lot of strength. I mean, I can see you're almost (laughs) in tears. I'm almost in tears because it's just so, it's so powerful sitting there with somebody. And I think what I hear too from the men that I have worked with is it means so much to them to have somebody just believe them. And I mean, it's, it's just so hard to even imagine sometimes, you know, that that sometimes they do want to talk about it. They do. They want to make sure they're not abusing other children, that they're not creating this legacy. And sometimes when they bring it up, other people shut them down. I think a lot of times that level of pain is really hard to see. And especially, you know, you have to think about many of these men in appearance are, you know, over six feet tall, they're very strong, they're yeah. big, but even if they're not tall, they're big in other ways, strong in other ways. And yeah. when you hear these sides, you know, it's very painful, I think, to be part of that process. And a lot of friends and family are not there with it. Um, but I think it's so important for men to come forward and talk about it. It protects others, but it also means that you don't then disclose in an offhanded way, because I've had right. little boys in therapy tell me their father shared that they were abused. Uh, um, and you really don't want kind of offhanded disclosure. You know, the, the father says to the boy, well, I was abused when he's stimulated by the boy's own development, Right. you know, to disclose and tell the story. Right. And so I think it's so important that men acknowledge this, come forward, and that there be support around it. Yeah. And I think in terms of addressing myths, too, I'd like to kind of move in the direction of talking about in college. You know, there are a lot of men in college that are being abused. And I think that's a very hard thing for a lot of people to just kind of wrap their heads around at all. You know, that we still have this idea predominantly in society that, you know, men, particularly of college age, 18 to 24, are kind of always seeking sex and that women are turning them down and so that if anybody's having sex with them they should be grateful and I think that is just it it is so hard for people to shift their mindset from that and so if you have that mindset then of course you're not going to be able to see or accept that men in college can be abused right I think um uh it points out here we might say 
that there are high rates of abuse of women in college. Oh, yes, absolutely. And uh, so college itself is not protective. And uh, I think it might be because you have young people there in a less supervised setting and these things occur. And there's the myth that this is a time of your life to have a lot of sexual activity. Right. So this is happening. But again, I think to keep in mind power equal relationships, having some relational capacity so you can have a conversation Mm -hmm. and understand what's going to happen in a sexual interaction And experimentation is a big part of college life, but that doesn't mean that you allow someone to power over you. And then the last thing, I think, is use of substances, because alcohol plays a large part in other substances. Other substances, too, In sexuality in college. And you really have to realize that you want to be available to make the best sexual choices. You may want to drink, but maybe you don't do these things at the same time is really part of it. I think that's part of it. I think the other part is that there's still such a focus on kind of women and consent. And we don't talk as much with men about consent or we don't talk as much with women about how men also have the right to consent. Because, you know, if you're fighting the idea that men just want sex all the time, then why would they ever need to consent? But that's just really not the case. And I think there are a lot of examples I've read online and I've heard from some clients where they talk about, you know, I passed out and I woke up with this woman on top of me. And it's assumed that that's like a fantastic thing, like what a fantasy. And it's really not experienced that way at all. Right. And the man feels lacking in power. Uh, it really affects maybe a sexuality that they were already struggling with. Yeah. It becomes more of a struggle, and it pushes them more in a, a position where they do not want to engage in sexual activity. You know, So you see really shifts around all of this, and so I think it's very important to keep that in mind. Also, a sexual abuse of boys and men in college uh, by other boys and men when yes. alcohol is in play. Yeah. And, um, you know, again, what's involved with that? You know, what is, um, you know, sexual experimentation by, you know, gay youth or youth in in transition? All of that is important, but it's important to have it be power equal and consent involved and awareness of what's really happening. I think, yeah, absolutely understanding power dynamics, which we talked about in the last (laughs) uh, podcast episode and is really what kind of stimulated this discussion because we wanted to talk about the dark side of power and power over. But I think one of the things that's really interesting that I learned is that, so in 2010, the United States um, Center for Disease and um, CDC, um, they have their National Intimate Partner Sexual Violence Survey where they ask people about the experiences that they've had. And one of the things they did was they included this new category, which was, have you ever been made to penetrate? Which was a huge shift. It's a huge shift. That's because right. it yeah. meant yeah. That, yeah. that the United States was recognizing that men could be abused and could be raped. And I think what was so interesting is when they added in this question, the rates that were reported between women and men were about the same. And I think that's just so striking. And it gets to what we've been talking about earlier, that men don't really even have a framework for thinking about their abuse. And 
It's really a question of, did you do this voluntarily? Did you want to do this? Did you feel an equal power? Did you have a conversation? Right. You know, and all of that is important to take into play here with this. Another thing that I hear brought up more in casual conversations is this idea that, well, you know, the the man came or, you know, he he was he had an erection so it seemed like he was consenting and i think that's a really important thing to address is that just because biologically somebody is responding to something it's not the same thing as consent right and many boys who are abused at say age 13 or 14 you know, they'll have a sexual orgasm and they'll have ejaculation. Right. But they feel like their bodies betray them with the abuser. And that's yeah. the pattern that plays into sexual fantasies that they really have, they struggle with. So it's really about how do you, even if your body has an orgasm and you do have ejaculation, that's not necessarily consent. Right. That's just a physical response to it. And it's similar to women who are abused who may feel aroused, but at the same time, they have the feeling of being overpowered or disgusted with the process. Yeah, and I think that's very hard. I mean, I think a lot of times, you know, you see people with eating disorders and different body image issues, and it's because a lot of it, you know, if you feel like your body is betraying you, I think that's a very hard thing to process, and you feel like your body isn't yours I've heard a lot of people describe, you know, I started to feel like I almost wasn't a human. I was a thing. And it really leads down this dark path of eventually like, well, maybe I don't deserve love. I don't deserve to be happy. And a lot of these teens, these children can become suicidal. I think it's very scary. Um, but I think we have to acknowledge that whether they be abused by a man or by a woman, that it's very harmful. Yeah. When you were speaking, I remembered so many therapies that I've had with offenders, yeah. users, where they felt like their sexuality was taken out of their control. Yeah. And what they reenact with children, you know, is that type of abusive cycle. So if you have been abused, it's so important not to get pulled into the dark cycle yeah. and to really get help with that. And realize that there's a lot more, you know, to sexuality than this dark cycle we're talking about. You know, and you need to really work your way out of it. But that's what I think happens to many. You know, they're pulled into a cycle without communication, uh, maybe with physical response, but with no feelings of joy or happiness or transformation, really. I think so. I mean, I think that's how it is for a lot of people. I think we also have to talk about the more complex issue that we've sort of alluded to, which is that a lot of these kids enter into these relationships through a grooming process. And so it doesn't always feel like they're not giving consent. And that's something that, you know, I work with a lot of kids with is, you know, like, you weren't really giving consent because you didn't understand what it meant to give consent. You didn't understand what was going on. But I think that's far more complicated for people to wrap their heads around. I've had a lot of uh, attorneys really ask, well, the kid was groomed for, you know, a year and they said yes, yes, yes to everything, especially, right. you know, with boys and 
So they must have meant yes, and yet the person is 12 years old. Right. You know, the child is 12 years old. Yes, they were groomed for a year by their coach to engage in this activity, but it doesn't mean that they understand what it is. They don't know what they're really saying yes to. And uh, the kids can blame themselves. Many, 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 many boys say, well, I consented. I said yes. It was my fault. And the teachers, the coaches uh, who are abusing will often say, guilt them and say, what's your fault? The kid did it. The kid's a sexually precocious monster. Right. And uh, so you get that response often from the individuals doing the abuse. And, uh, you know, but the child lives with that. And um, I think it's so important that we understand that consent is a, a, like disclosure, is a long process and involves a lot of feelings and recognition of your own sexual desires. Yeah, and recognition of what that even means. Because, I mean, you can say yes to something, but if you don't have the full capacity to understand what you're entering into, it's still not really consent. Right. And this brings us back to our favorite topic of conversations. It's through conversations that we really learn more about this. We learn, you know, really how to communicate with another person. We learn how to articulate our own desires. And there's such a big part combined with our physical response and social, you know, response. But it's really conversations that add so much to it. It's conversations and it's the conversations that are about kind of building knowledge because I really think by building knowledge, by helping people recognize what are your resources, who can you go to, what can you do if you are in this situation, that builds a sense of power too. So it's really the combination of knowledge and power because I do think it's important that we have different systems. You know, you have the police, you have teachers, you're starting to have more policies, But I think at the end of the day, we also have a lot of personal responsibility that if people bring something up, it's our job to figure out, well, what can I do to help? How how can I help this person? And I think it goes back to that idea first of understanding if somebody's bringing it up, that's a very hard thing and that they're most likely not lying. And so you need to take them seriously. And if you don't know what you're doing, at the very least, we have so much access to resources. You can go online and look up what you can do. But I think it's just so important to take this seriously and to really understand boys can be abused and are abused, have been abused. Men have been, can be, are abused. And I think that's why it's so important to be able to highlight the complexity of all of it. Because it isn't a lot of the ideas that are floating around of these random people being abused by random people. And that there's just so much more to it. I I think you emphasize the aspect of relationships and all of this. And it's so important I think for people to understand really abusive relationships with children, there are resources. There's the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry that has many fact sheets about abuse of children, and that's very important. Uh, I think Child Protective Services in many uh, locales has hotlines to Mm -hmm. call in abuse. Many of us are mandated reporters. Sometimes we don't even know we're mandated reporters, and we are, uh, but finding out about all of that... um, But I think even calling therapists to work with children and adolescents, you can get advice about, you know, who to talk to. And so there's so many resources available that I encourage 
really individuals to seek them out. Yeah, and I think we'll post some of them on our website so that they're ready, readily available for people. So one of the things that I want to highlight um, before we kind of wrap up is that often when I'm working with a client who has been abused, whether male or female, but since we're talking about boys and men here, is that what comes out somewhere in the process is that deep down, often somebody knows what's going on. And that it's really important that if you are that somebody, even if you don't have 100% proof that you bring it up, that you raise questions, that you learn to recognize signals or the signs, the red flags as we call them, and that you trust those instincts and that you try and use your voice and say something about it. Because a lot of times other people will be having similar thoughts or feelings. Right. And if you're the knowledgeable bystander, as we talk about, you know, red flags are you know, a child or adolescent alone with an adult frequently, a child or adolescent expressing love, romantic love for an adult. That's another factor. Mm -hmm. Um, Signs of physical uh, abuse, because physical abuse is more often used with boys Mm -hmm. to uh, promote sexual activity than it is with girls. You know, so there's risk factors, red flags, I think, to really be aware of. Alcohol or substance abuse of a child, a sudden change in grades with the child, dramatic drop in grades. You know, you start thinking, is abuse a factor here? Or uh, rampant sexual activity, not even rampant, it's unexpected or unexplained sexual activity. Mm -hmm. Because suddenly you might have a a child... More sexualized. Yeah, who's more sexualized, who's engaging in sex play with her younger siblings. And again, you want to flag this and think, could something else be going on here? I think another couple things to add to that list is a lot of times part of the grooming process is giving gifts, playing favorites. And I think a lot of kids see that, but they don't know how to make sense of it. And they're not automatically going to go, oh, red flag, that must be sexual abuse. you know. But as a parent, as somebody in the community, an adult, I think if we can start educating people that these are real red flags and you can teach kids, like, if you see these things, you know, let me know. You don't have to alarm them about all the other aspects, but you can say, you know, if you see these things and something seems strange, it's important that you bring it up to me. And the other thing I think to be aware of is the beginning of uh touching activity with kissing and engaging there many of the dare problem you know programs and other programs addressing specifically sexual abuse address it yeah uh, but you know that type of touching process um you know did your teacher hug you or kiss you and what was involved in all of that mm-hmm. I mean I think that's harder for parents to have that conversation right but I think at the very least you build a relationship where there where you let your child know if if you feel that something is up, you can come to me. Yeah, I think that's the bottom line of all of it with parenting. Well, Jen, this has been really uh, challenging in many ways to talk about, but uh, I hope we've been helpful to our listeners and we'd like to hear from them about this too. Yeah, thank you so much for listening. Let's talk about sex.